Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I don't know if you all have noticed, but there is a particular sweetness to many of the men who have come on our podcast. And Ed Fraunheim is no better representation of a man who has really integrated his sweetness inside of himself. And he's a consultant. He's a co-author of four books, including A Great Place to Work for All. And the one we're going to talk a lot about, Reinventing Masculinity, the liberating power of compassion and connection. I, it's a it's a slow, story filled, sweet hearted conversation. And if you're somebody that's like frustrated with your husband right now, this might be a good one to pop on in the car while you're driving around. Because I think this is an opportunity to hear somebody who has really embodied um, an integrated masculinity and sweetness and kindness and integrity. And he'll sing a song at the end too. What can I say? I love that he sang a song that he sings to his kids to bed at night. It's just so, so sweet. What a pure, pure heart this human is. So Ed Fraunheim, join us, listen in. Ed Fraunheim, the beautiful German name, the San Franciscan that I get to hang out with while I, a San Franciscan, I'm living in Germany. Welcome. Okay. I'm excited you, to Tracy. have you here. You know what else? I, I am before, excited to be here. Before we ha- before you came on, I was stalking your um, LinkedIn profile, and you you have a skill that I'm very envious of. Can I tell you? You're Please. A, you're a writer. I, I like am a, a writer. writer for a long time. I've been trying for a long time. Yes, fair enough. This is, to me, I'm a little bit in awe of writers right now because I'm trying to learn how to write and I just think it's the hardest job in the world. So I'm in deep admiration, seriously. But you, you used I, to go I know from, a lot of, it takes a lot of practice, but you can get there. And I'm, I admire great podcasters and listeners like you. So uh, back at you. So I wanted to have you on because I, so much of what you've been talking about has really been talking about masculinity in our culture and the harm and it has it can do to men. And this is something near and dear to my heart because I really love the men that come into my couples therapy practice for the last 18 years. They're such sweet, sweet hearts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're not given a lot of places to be sweet, sweet hearts in their life. And so I'm like, I gotta talk to this guy, Ed. So can you tell me how you even got here? Because you have such an interesting career with so many paths. How did you end up writing a book about modern masculinity? I I appreciate the invitation. Um, I think 
your term sweet sweet hearts is 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 a nice jumping off point um because i have had a hard time uh as a man uh i've had my own kind of heart break breaks you might say or or sort of um a lot of sadness and struggle and shame around not fitting into the typical uh, categories and not not meeting the expectations of being a winner a high performing professional that rises to the top of an organization, uh, a clutch sports performer, uh, even a lady killer. You know, the, the, some of these kind of traditional signs of success as a guy, these were all tricky for me. Uh, I'll even just also body type. You know, I'm a pretty skinny guy in, in, a, in a culture that really glorifies the muscular man. Uh, so I had uh, my own issues as I grew up and, and have made my way as a professional, as a writer. Uh, and I was writing as a father too, and challenges around feeling like uh, not always meeting expectation, expectations as a dad. So I brought my own kind of personal baggage or personal story mm-hmm. to this book project. I also uh, brought professional observations I was writing about, I've been writing about workplace culture for about 10 or 15 years now um, in a variety of different settings. And I was noticing that the men that are succeeding these days aren't looking like the kind of prototypical manly boss of the Don Draper era. You know, you could no longer be that sort of like stoic, close, uh, close hearted, at least in the, in, in the office setting. I gather he was more emotionally expressive. in the bedroom maybe, or privately, but, um, you couldn't be that barking boss that kind of, um, who really was uninterested in emotional topics at all. And just about their own, um, expectations and, and their own, you know, advancement. Uh, so that was in the research of like, you needed to be, have, you needed to have those softer skills like communication, listening, empathy, uh, vulnerability, uh, collaboration, not just competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I took that, my personal stuff, my professional stuff, and I matched it up with, or we, we, my co-author and I kind of got together as a uh, kind of a, a great match because he was from the psychological perspective. He was, he's a therapist, um, psychologist who's worked with men and boys for many years at Adams and just a brilliant guy. And so we were kind of bringing all of our interests together in this book mm-hmm. uh, about reinventing masculinity and, and instead of elevating how important it is to be compassionate and connected as, as men today. Gosh, there's so many places I want to go with how you just responded. I mean, I get hopeful as mm. I hear you talk, but tell then I why, also... Tell me why there, because I, I was telling you kind of a grim story there. No, because you wrote the book and you were willing to feel your own discomfort. I mean, I... I could hear how you had to wrestle with some stuff to even write this book, you know? And um, Mm -hmm. I think also, because I, when you went down that list of words, several stories of different men that I worked with in my career came up and I kind of winced, imagining Mm -hmm. like uh, how not free, you know, we, we, men are kind of the bad guys in our culture right now, especially white, white men. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I've been on the other side of that, seeing the great burden as well. And I don't get me wrong, I'm really interested in justice. But um, yeah. I think I'm interested in 
justice and liberation from confining roles that our society puts on all of us. Yeah, that's really, I, I love the way you put that. And that you're speaking to our our language in, in our in our book about a liberating masculinity that we think is where we're headed, coming mm-hmm. from what we would call a confined masculinity. And I think you're right that the roles we've had and the ways we can relate as men have been very narrow. Just we can be a provider, protector, conqueror, maybe procreator, but it's not that sanctioned to be a caregiver. It's not that sanctioned to be kind of a uh, someone who's interested in speaking, seeking spiritual wisdom, um, and the ways we relate is so much as a as a as a rival and and a you know a combatant, um, and and also someone who's supposed to be really kind of buttoned down and and not expressing emotion or vulnerability, and those that's just cutting off so much of our humanity mm-hmm. when we we ignore the the caring the caregiver in ourselves and, and the compassionate side of ourselves. Um, and to, and the ability to forge relationships because you're supposed to be that Island, the self-sufficiency that gets to the point of isolation. So, uh, yes, that confinement is a problem. And and it's actually, and you, you probably know this, Tracy, it's born out in the data that uh, when men really adhere to those conventional beliefs, uh, very strictly, they don't live as long. They have worse health outcomes in general. They're less happy. And it's when men are kind of making friends or keeping friends uh, going in the opposite of the current trend, which is that men are having fewer friends over time for a variety of reasons. You know, that's, that is the single biggest factor for health and long, uh, a long, happy life is friendships. And yet we're, we're having a deficit of friendships and relationships uh, among American men right now. Hmm. How do we change it? Like, what do you, I know that you said it's starting to change. And I also think, see, there are a lot of holds outs. I even see my sons. Get, <laughs> I said this when I was interviewing Niobe Way on this podcast. I said, you know, one of my wow. sons used to come in and give me the daily toxic masculinity report on the playground. And I, mm. I, I, <laughs> I just laughed that he, because we listened, we used to listen to NPR on the way to school, mm-hmm. which was a long ride. So they picked up this vernacular. And so I asked him, I said, do you know what toxic masculinity is? And he had the most beautiful description. I don't know if I like the word toxic so much because I feel it's pretty mean. But I think at the time, this was the language he was hearing in the news. And I do think what he was getting at was, I'm getting the message that when my feelings get hurt or my body gets hurt and not allowed to cry, I have to act tough and mean. Right. That's what he said. And yeah. he was eight. And I was like, what? How do I right. protect him from being socialized like this? That's such a great question. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that schools are doing a better job around that. Many are with social emotional learning and conflict resolution uh, as a practice that's taught. Uh, but my son had similar reports of, of the, you know, toxic Playground masculinity, and I agree with you. Toxic is that's a word we kind of deliberately avoided in our in our book, but it is a poisonous kind of masculinity when when you are sol- solving problems with violence and and expecting that uh, you're not allowed to have feelings. Really, 
and, mm-hmm. or and and to to be sad or scared and express that. Uh, I think awareness is such a big part of it, and Naomi Way's work around the intimacy of of boys um, and friendships is so that was an inspiration to me uh, when I, I got exposed to some of that. Um, you know, you may have seen it in our book. We we do think there are there's a path to this liberating masculinity. Getting back to your question of how um, we have these five C's that we think are is is a way to make progress. Mm. Should I go through some of those? Please, would that, I would uh, love helpful? it. Um, and that first one is curiosity. You know, speaking to that idea of awareness that there isn't just one way. Can can is this really the only way to show up as a man? Besides asking other questions. Um, and just even questions about anything, not just gender roles or, or expectations, because we start off as curious as human beings. You know, that's yeah. um, a birthright uh, of our of our of our species. Why is the sky blue? You know, how do airplanes stay up in the air? Uh, and yet, men have get this message at some point, especially on adolescence, that uh, you got to be the smartest guy in the room, and to be curious and ask questions is seen as weak. Mm. So, and we can't be weak. And so we, we, we smush out that curiosity. The next C we have is, although they don't have to be in perfect, you don't have to go in order, but these, I think this is a logical order that we, as we saw it was courage mm. because to, to take a stand in this newer way of, of say, oh, I am going to cry if I'm really hurt mm. or if I'm sad, mm-hmm. or I am going to be compassionate to someone who's hurting as opposed to be mean and tough. Um, that you know, you're bucking the trend mm-hmm. and you're, you may get mocked for it. Mm-hmm. Um, even just to explore one's own emotional and life, your yeah. interior life, that takes courage because we men, we've been told to be courageous and we are often courageous in the physical realm, in the financial realm, but not necessarily the realm of feelings. So that's the call to kind of boldly acknowledge and feel for the baby mm. for the first time and since you're a kid that you know relates to the the third one is compassion and that's not just feeling whatever hurt is in you or the or, or someone else but then trying to take steps to to address it yeah. and men are often compassionate in their actions we, we might take care of our families say as a breadwinner we may care about them but there's we're calling on men to be more explicit about it and to to uh get in understand the language of emotional intelligence really and it often can start with self-compassion to like acknowledge our own wounds and the ways that we're frustrated that we aren't sanctioned to do uh historically we haven't been sanctioned to do the fourth one is connection to build those relationships to to realize how powerful that is to our own lives to having a fuller life a richer life uh and to buck that trend that we're we have to be uh, completely isolated in, in our own uh, island, mm. uh, if you will, to, to be successful. And then the last one we talk about is commitment uh, of sticking with it because it's not a one and done. You don't flip a switch and you're the new man. You know, I, I'm wrestling with these things all the time myself and I wrote a book on it. Um, so it's, can you, can you really pledge to work on this over time uh, and find allies and, and supporters and be in community often. I mean, men's groups are, are a great way to do that. So those are the, the five C's we've outlined that we think help guys make that shift. Uh, and we see it happening. So I, I am hopeful too, but that that's our how in a nutshell.
Well, I hope one day that you take this book and stretch it into a, a global movement of men's groups, right? Because I think mm. what's hard is is finding them, finding the place to make these connections that could really, and maybe you already are, uh, that could really matter. I know that there are other organizations. I don't know about mm -hmm. all of them, but um, yeah, it's hard. It's, I think it's hard for men to know where to start, right? Yeah. How do I even what? begin to make these new friends? Yeah. You know, that's a great point. And I agree, Tracy. Can I offer one su suggestion along Please. those lines? Go back to your earliest friends. Mm. You, you, you know, a lot of men don't have friends in middle age or they've lost a number of them. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that I, this is, I'm speaking from my own experience that I've, I do have some really wonderful friends that I've developed in my adulthood, but I also reconnected to a lot of my childhood friends. Uh, it, through an act of compassion by one of, one of them, uh, I was having a kind of a hard time in my life a couple, several years ago. And this guy said, you know what, I'm going to add you to this text thread. Of, so there's like 14 of us guys from middle school and high school on this thread. And we talk a lot about sports, but we also talk about some heavier stuff and parenting challenges and, and joys of, of, of grandchildren in, in, in one case. Um, and it's just been a great uh, reminder that there's a richness there. It goes back to the Naomi way stuff. Like we can come back to some of these relationships where there's a lot of love for mm. each other, uh, starting at that young age and it can be rekindled. Mm. Um, and I think that's one way, if you're confused, reach out to someone that you, you know, were, were close to when you were sixth grade. I love that. I love that. You know, it used to, this mem memory just comes to mind. Um, part of one of the things that I just treasured when I was living in the Bay Area, I had two weekdays off, Mondays and Wednesdays, where I didn't go into the office. And so I would usually go do paperwork at a cafe in my little town in Half Moon Bay. Okay. And there was a group of men that every morning had coffee in the same cafe. And so I, I preferred the coffee in the other cafe, but sometimes... Uh -huh. It would just warm my heart so much because it was usually about eight or nine, wow. a good number. And they yeah. would meet every morning. They were retired and they would sit around and shoot that, yeah. shoot the heck, you know? Yeah. And I really liked it when they started to get to know me. So sometimes they'd say hi or they would forget I was there and I could eavesdrop and what they were talking about. It was just, I don't know. It just made it just, I think that I, get really excited when I see these old confining structures and rule, I guess I really like it when rules get broken. And I just mm -hmm. felt like they were kind of subversively breaking rules because they were sometimes one guy would pat his buddy's hand back, you know, and put his yeah. arm on his shoulder. And I'd just be like, oh, this is, this like makes my day. <laughs> you know, I see. I love that. And I think there are, there's so much power in those kind of groups. One thing that kind of uh, warms my heart, I, I go to a, a cafe like you did uh, in in, the, in San Francisco. Uh, it's on 17th and, and uh, Dolores, if you, you know where that is, uh -huh. uh, in the Mission District. Uh -huh. And every like fourth Saturday uh, or once a month, I think, there's a group of, of older gay guys, uh, gay men that meet there. And I learned from, I talked to one of the organizers of this event that they had been struggling with isolation as well. And you often think of, of gay men as having a, a, a different kind of masculinity or a, a less a, a 
adherence to some of those principles of like you know self-sufficiency and disconnection but it was affecting these older older fellows in the community because they weren't really part of the the club scene anymore they were you know uh, a lot of their friends had died in the AIDS crisis and so this uh, I, I think it's part of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation they deliberately act, reached out and brought uh, fellows together in the in the gay community and they just it's so heartwarming to see you know anywhere from 20 to 50 of these men come together and talk and have coffee um it's just you can tell how hungry we are as men as human beings for connection you know and the research has backed that up in, in the last couple of decades that we are a social animal and yet that traditional set of man rules is that no you're not you know you're you're uh you're on your own and um that I think causes so much pain and, 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 and suffering. Yeah. The other thing that people ask me all the time and they say, um, you know, who comes and sits down when you've been listening? Is it one kind of people? And I said, surprisingly, it's a lot of young men before mm. the age of 30 that would sit down, at least in my location. And it could just be the demographic because we were in the financial district, but it was clear that they, you know, that, Oftentimes tears would come. I'd wow. hear lots of deep story because, and I think that they felt, I mean, I would have some that would sit down and say, I'm in therapy. So I don't need to be vulnerable with you because I already have someone to be vulnerable with. I'm like, well, you could be vulnerable mm -hmm. with me too. This uh -huh. is what I kind of sometimes hate about therapy. I'm like, so you're going to only save it for that one place. How about uh -huh. other places, you know? Yeah. yeah. And others of them had no place had no place to experiment with these kinds of feelings. This is sidewalk talks in San Francisco you're talking about? Yeah, back when I lived in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We did it in the same location for four years on third and oh. market. Okay. Yeah. That yeah, I'm really moved by this movement you've started and and I'm so glad that you're attracting men who may not feel like they have much of another or this is a place for them to get maybe started connecting and talking communicating we need more male listeners though <laughs> we don't That's have as many point. men listening we have a lot more of the women that are doing the listening and so i think that that's um there there don't get me wrong we have some amazing mm -hmm. men who listen but we, we there definitely is a skew towards women isn't that that's an i i'm glad you i mean i'm sorry about that and i'm also <laughs> glad you highlighted it because i think that's another one of these uh expectations that we're we are supposed to be lar large and in charge and loud uh not necessarily listening because that suggests you were that's that the feminine energy of, of receptivity and and uh making space for others when you're supposed to command the space um one of the ways that i i've been thinking about this even ever since since the book came out is this notion of, the, of being an arrow and circle man Mm. And and by that I'm referring to that that kind of Mars symbol of a, of a where there's a circle and an arrow that represents masculinity and the arrow part is what we've spent almost all our time on like as guys over the last several thousand years I would argue the energetic get there do it get to the goal um, it is kind of it's driven but it then we lose the circle which you know you could call that the more the masculine energies that I was just describing strength and, and determination purpose. But then there's this whole other part that's like listening 
receptivity, vulnerability, community, that I think those things get, those get captured by the, the idea of a circle. And when we don't embrace all of our humanity as men, we miss out on so much. Mm-hmm. We can learn so much when we're listening as opposed to talking. Um, we get such richness in our relationships if we're deeply listening. So here I am talking your ear off as I say this, but I, I think this is a vital thing for men t- to listen more and to even be guided on that because we're, we're not expected to as much, as much as kids to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're also in a time where it feels like some of these attributes of aggression, being loud, of being large and in charge are really lauded in the media. And so I don't even find that it's just that this is being lauded for men. It's being lauded for everybody Mm -hmm. to behave this way. And yet, yes, the American election was a great corrective to that, I think. Mm. The midterm elections just happened. That One Washington Post writer said, like, America said a big no thanks to authoritarian bullies that I think are the extreme version of what you're saying, like, large and in charge so much that I'm not even going to listen to a vote that goes against me. <laughs> like, I'm going to become a dictator. Um, and by and large... You know, the the most extreme versions of that on the Republican Party were, you know, sent packing or or were not elected, um, which gave me so much hope about where where we're going and, and some of these values and realizing, you know, even if there's a lot of pain and frustration and feeling left behind on, on a lot of Americans' parts, there's recognizing that we don't want to be led by bullies, mm. uh, the people that aren't aren't sensitive and, and don't have a heart. So that's encouraging to me. Okay, so my my mind just went to a completely different direction, which is more the role of people that are not male identified. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that we can be showing up to make space for men to be their full selves, to not have to be the large and in charge macho guys? Is there a certain way that that we also need to adjust? I appreciate that question. And I think Tracy, you know, I want to make clear that it is men's responsibility and uh, work to do this maturation, this evolution toward uh, more fulfilling and more inclusive uh, identity and masculinity. At the same time, people that aren't men, women and other non-binary folks say can do a lot to help. Uh, and I would say some of the same C's apply because I think that uh, it's the masculinity that we're identifying in our book, this dominant, uh, confined masculinity, it affects women as well. You know, it's mm. it's the way that women have had to uh, be to succeed in business, say, because business has adopted these, I would say, hyper-masculine cultures uh, mm-hmm. where emotion is not ac- appreciated, where you're supposed to uh, be ruthless. Uh, you kind of see right, like rivals everywhere and kind of get, try to get to the top rung of the ladder. Cause it's like a pyramid ladder. So, you know, a lot of women have identified, have, have taken on this ethos or this ethos more than men have, or as much as, so I think if women can be aware of that and, and 
ask those questions, the curiosity, like how can I show up? Like just the question you asked. One place that I think is is where the rubber meets the road is like, what if your husband, say if you're a woman married to a husband, a man, and they are trying to get in touch with them with their feelings more. Are you going to be supportive if they are weeping one day? Mm -hmm. uh, are you going to be, are you going to flinch at that and say, that's what, what kind of man am I married to? You know, or, or, or treat your husband as even in an, in an unconscious way as kind of an ATM machine where they're supposed to bring all the bucks in. Um, if, if, if women and, and, and other folks who aren't men can, can, uh, recognize that they are also affected at a deep level by these attitudes, then they can avoid shaming men who are trying to make this journey. They can support them, uh, invite them into those vulnerable spaces of change. So I think there's a big role there. Yeah. You know, this ATM machine thing that you just mentioned comes up a lot in my couples therapy practice. Is that right? I can imagine it. Yeah. And say, where... say more about that. Well, and I'll be, I'll be vulnerable. Um, look, I can be rather childish when it comes to money, right? And my husband is a very soft, feminine guy who takes none of my bullshit at the same time. <laughs> Sounds like a great combination. <laughs> Everyone's circle man right there. Um, Here's us right through the bullshit. <laughs> and one year I did pay my quarterly taxes. And so when the tax okay. bill came around, his bonus check went to pay for my taxes. And he said, this isn't, well, this isn't okay for me. Like, you know, this isn't cool. And I also didn't want to be treated like a child. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to be treated like a child. So how can we show up adult to adult rather mm -hmm. than parent child? Your yeah. anger is warranted because I just treated you like an ATM machine. Mm but your anger doesn't get to move into a power over position with me. I'd rather yeah. move into a power with, mm -hmm. what can we do here? And so we thought about it and we agreed that I, we signed a, a um, it's not a post-nup, it's a, I forget the word right now, but we signed an illegal document that said that if, if we were to ever get divorced, that yeah. that money would come out of the divorce settlement because we're we have combined finances right okay yeah but this was it was um an important energetic agreement to say mm -hmm. you didn't you didn't handle your stuff you didn't hold up your end of your adult responsibility here and and yeah i think a lot of times this unconscious thing happens. Boy, we're going to get all kinds of comments on this podcast. I already know <laughs> just from this conversation, <laughs> this is going to be tricky. But it's so baked in unconsciously, mm -hmm. right? Now, right. there are some other things, right? Women oftentimes leave the workplace to raise children or have children for a short period of time, even if not permanently. And that ends up sometimes reducing their earnings potential. But I have yeah. also many couples where the, the woman makes more, but nevertheless, this it still seems that there is this interesting conversation around the money and even if people yeah. will often say okay well if the woman makes more what does that do to your relationship because the man is not in the traditional breadwinner role and sometimes it is unconsciously impacting the couple mm -hmm. if the man is not in a power over position 
somehow the psyche gets really squidgy around that. I can totally imagine that, Tracy. Yeah. And I'm glad you're pointing out the, the sensitivity to this because there is no, there's never a validation for like a a domineering spouse, I don't think, or especially an abusive spouse, uh, but even like the emotional elements of or, or patronizing. Um and at the same time, I think because these attitudes are so deeply ingrained in us that the man is the breadwinner, the man handles the money, uh it's easy for both partners to get blind blinded to mm-hmm. ways they're they're treating each other. And and I know, I mean I'll share my a little bit of my own story with my wife is a, is an artist who I admire like crazy. I fell in love with her art when we met 22 years ago and and we have had we wanted to parent our kids in a very equal way and yet it, it just didn't work out. It didn't make any sense practically because she can earn so much less than I can as a, you know, not quite starving artist. And, um, but someone who is not in a lucrative arena, even though she's brilliant and, and has done some really amazing performances throughout San Francisco and the world, even at this point. So what does that mean at times when things have gotten, uh, tense around money or around dream pursuit? Because what, what's kind of happened is I've basically subsidized her her arts career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is great on some level, but it also leads to me at times resenting that I have to do stuff I don't necessarily want to do. And she gets to do stuff she wants to do. On the other hand, she's resentful that we are in a society that doesn't, doesn't pay, pay artists. artists. Mm-hmm. So I, it's like, I, and I get that. And yet we have to kind of navigate the, the, the personal and the public. Uh, and it, it gets tricky at times. And I think she's, over time, uh, been appreciative of my need to pursue my creative dreams, if you will, which includes pursuing this masculinity stuff. So she really, she did support me when I left my organization two years ago without any clear way of rate of making money. And we had like two months until I was going to get no more pay- paychecks. And thankfully we, things have worked out, but that was a, and the culmination of a lot of conversations sounding like a little bit like what you and your your husband talked about as well like how do we handle this in in an adult responsible way that really is about meeting each other halfway so for all of you folks listening to us you're going to go home tonight and if you're married you're going to have a conversation with your spouse about money that's what's going to happen after this episode (laughs) because it's a it's a big one even for folks that think that they're really really progressive Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I've been tracking over the 18 years that I've been working with couples is how it is almost always the female partner, not always, but I would say 95% of the time that gets to do some kind of subsidized creative pursuit for their career. Mm, Interesting. And the male ends up subsidizing that. And... um, That's really fascinating. It's an interesting... interesting I I didn't know how much of data was... How unusual this I might is, be, but this I, is just my data from my practice. Sure, seventy percent of my mm-hmm. practice is working with couples, and so mm-hmm. um, it's an important topic. And then in the couples where the man is actually earning less and pursuing, whether it's a a startup that's unclear if it's going to take off, or mm-hmm. something creative, um, it creates a lot different kind of tension. Than if it's the woman doing it. 
And I what, really what kind think, of tension do you see there? Um, the expectation of the male to be the breadwinner comes up. And it's so nuanced because on top of that, we all have these attachment injuries that we bring into romantic partnerships mm. that play out mm -hmm. regardless of gender. It doesn't matter if you're two females or two males or non-binary or, or male or female, but that also plays into it. But I do believe that the injury that comes up when it's a female breadwinner and a male partner pursuing this passion project is a real sense of injustice because I'm earning the money and I was pregnant with the babies. Mm. So therefore mm -hmm. you owe me <laughs> mm -hmm. is the kind yeah. of vibe that comes up. And it's very, it's look, there's no right or wrong way. But what I hear you saying, Ed, is if you use the five C's, at least you can both talk about it. But if you're both stuck in these masculine, feminine roles, it's just totally hard to unpack any of it. You can't even navigate it that well. If one person is in, hear me roar, roll, and the other one's, okay, how do you even navigate this Yeah. Stuff? Well, you said it better than I have up to now, Tracy. So I'm going to steal your, yes, use the five C's to, to do this. Um, but I, I think you're kind of right. Like, it, yeah, it, there's some curiosity. What are, what are these ways I'm operating and what are these assumptions I'm operating under? And that does take some courage to acknowledge that, okay, maybe I'm feeling as the guy say uh, in a, let's say I'm the guy doing my creative thing. I still might feel a lot of uh, guilt or, or shame for not being the breadwinner and to sort of fess up to that. And so that you can be self-compassionate, you know, to go to the, the sea of compassion and, and seek and ask for your spouse to be compassionate and also to be compassionate to them. If they're feeling frustrated that they they're having to do it all, you know, yeah. have the babies and bring the money in, which I think does lead to connection, you know, or, or a deeper connection. If you can really work through these things, mm -hmm. that's how I feel with, with my wife anyways, it sounds like you and your husband have worked through stuff too. But at this point, I think, you know, we can get through almost any crisis because we've made it through these tough, tough exchanges. Mm -hmm. um, and we are committed, you know, the final one, like to, to doing that. And we, and when I see some marriages breaking up, it's, it's often because they didn't have that persistence to work through stuff. Mm. that seems to be such a, I mean, I, I wonder if I'm pitching to acquire or, or converted for, you, you should be telling me that, but uh, at, these folks didn't have the muscle memory that didn't have the, the muscles of deep communication. Uh, it struck me in some of the breakups I've seen. Mm. Yeah. There's the muscles of deep communication and there's the nervous system that gives you the capacity to use your muscles. If you've got mm. some old developmental, childhood attachment wounds what happens is your nervous system gets all ah, freaking out so you can't even lift the weight the communication weight you know and so a lot of work i do is about helping folks also learn about their nervous system in addition to their their muscles their communication muscles i appreciate that what's in it give me an example of an attachment wound it's a I think I may know what you're getting at, but I'm yeah. not sure. So you're late. You come home late for dinner. You're 20 minutes late. And I get mad. Ah, super <laughs> mad. 
like <laughs> just off my rocker. And then yeah. I just shame you because why are you late? And, you know, duh, duh, duh. and then the argument is about being late. Okay. But you're having a, on a scale of zero to 10, something that maybe warrants a two level of frustration is getting a nine level of frustration. Yeah. So when we hang out with that a little bit and we slow way down and we sequence, what did you see right there? And what was really the meaning for you when your partner was late? You might break down some context that, oh, well, on this particular day, maybe the kids were so difficult or my workday was so difficult that I really needed you. Mm. But attachment mm -hmm. says is when I'm in distress, I proximity seek my person. But when your partner's late, you can't proximity seek them. You, you can't, they're not there. So you're just like a little kid going, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Mm. And your, your nervous system is getting more and more and more and more distressed because they're not there. They're not there. They're not there. Yeah. And they come home and you let them have it. And so learning yeah. okay. that, hey, this is a neurobiological response that's normal. You're not crazy mm -hmm. and that you deserve a lot of this compassion that you were talking about, a lot of courage to really know something about your attachment system and go, oh, okay, the, so human romantic partners do this with one another when you're, you need them and they're not there. We freak out in our nervous yeah. system. Mm -hmm. Other times it's because they're too close and up in your business. So you freak out for another reason. Like, yeah. oh my God, you're like, controlling me and you're too it's too much can i tell you a story along those lines then that, sure. that that i think ties into our masculinity stuff uh, i think uh, one way to understand the fact that i had a heart attack last year is this attachment wounding stuff ah um i'm sorry you had i had a, heart a mild attack, I, had, I had i had a mild heart attack um yeah thank you uh, about a year and a half ago and it probably had to do with freaking out around parenting my kids um partly because they're learning to drive in san francisco the two of them at the same time and mm. that's a challenging thing but and this one night and my son was also just he's he's a late owl like a night owl and likes to be out late and, and it was covid times it was kind of a weird time but at one point he pulled an alcatraz escape tracy he, he like out the window bed. kind of <laughs> well he stuffed his bed with pillows and, oh, and, a, and a hat or something on his pillow and for whatever reason, I woke up at four in the morning and decided to go check on him, which I hardly ever do. He's a senior in high school. And at first he looked, I, I thought he was great. And then I was like, wait, that's a pillow, body pillow in his bed, not him. His son doesn't answer his phone. Turn, so I'm freaking out. I'm like doing this man thing of being angry as opposed mm -hmm. to sad or, or scared and acknowledging those things. Um, and so I, I'm thinking maybe there's something about that, like just utter terror and the neurological thing of where's this loved one, right? If mm -hmm. this is, if that's like mm -hmm. losing a parent, but I'm losing my kid. Turns out he was, his batteries out of phone, out of phones, out of batteries. He's out taking pictures from Twin Peaks, like the highest part of San Francisco mm -hmm. and going to meet his girlfriend for breakfast at six in the morning. And, um, it's all fine, but I was, I got so bent out of shape that I, I think I bent my heart out of shape. I had mm. what's called an art, um, a 
a uh, an artery, a coronary artery spasm that mm. like where your heart, one of your arteries clenches, they went in through a, a vein or through an artery and like squirted, squirted some nitroglycerin and it went whoop, it opened right back up again. It was like mechanical. Um, and I've been pretty good since then on the, the physical front. But I think your point about these wounds that we have, I, mm-hmm. I was bringing a lot of, I think, anxiety and terror that I had as a kid at times, including mm-hmm. from a, you know, a very um, explosive father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here I was reproducing that um, when my, when I should have probably been in a place of just sadness and fear and, and action to like, how do I try to find him? He's probably not dead by mm-hmm. all, you know, the, the odds. So I don't know if that, if it, if, if I've matched the attachment wound exactly there, but uh, that's what sparked for me when you said that. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, well, I, I think I, you're the expert on this, but I think I've read that, you know, men tend to go towards anger first when they haven't been able to develop the full range of their other feelings and mm-hmm. you broke your heart. That's really true. Yeah. When you were actually just uh, needing to learn how to feel heartbroken. Mm. Are you are you a writer or something, Tracy? No, uh, no, no I said at the beginning you, you that I admire did. that I am writing a book, though. But I work with a writer. But I'm a therapist, you know. We use well, that was beautiful what you just about. said there. Um, about stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and maybe, and maybe that's underneath. You know, there's an interesting metaphor here in what you're saying that perhaps underneath men's anger is a broken heart in some ways. I, do you mind if I steal that Please. in the future? Uh, refer back to you too. Um, I think that's totally true. And and I yeah. know uh, working with my co, co-author, Ed Adams, like that anger is a sanctioned emotion for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe contentment. Uh, you know, we think about lying and sitting on the couch with some beers, watching a, f- a football game or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but sadness, fear, unsanctioned. Uh, even joy isn't so sanctioned. Interesting. Which is such a such a loss. Yeah. For 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 us guys, and I I wrote an essay about this heart attack thing when I talked a little about that, like the lack of uh, ability to go to those heights mm-hmm. and even to places of spiritual richness. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I I was ex- I had some moments after the heart attack, which are also typical, to, where I thought I had more heart attacks and mm-hmm. anxiety attacks. And I thought I was going to die one night and um, had a kind of this beautiful experience of thinking I was going to join my mother who died about eight years ago. And I think a lot of guys, and this is also in the research, are less interested in going to a spiritual place. Mm. And it's considered, again, like unmanly, you know, mm. woo-woo or, or, or kind of frivolous. Mm. Uh, and, and there, again, is, is a lack of, of deep human existence and uh richness mm. you know so we, we miss we miss out on that when we when we close ourselves off in those confined masculinity ways yeah this has been so fun connecting with you at the end of you're my you're my friday night tonight ed <laughs> Exciting. yeah i was wondering what time it is in germany like yeah it's almost midnight so we have this fun ritual for how we end the conversation which is you get to take over the mic and speak directly to all the folks that listen 
around the world on sidewalks, either a wish or words of wisdom, whatever, no pressure, just whatever comes into your heart and mind. I'm going to sing a little verse of a song. You inspire me. And this is, this could be really, it might not sound good, but I hope it's coming from the heart. Can I just start? Yeah. In this heart lies for you a lark born only for you who sings only to you my love my love my love talk about modeling something other than machismo that was amazing ed it was so lovely to have you here my pleasure tracy thank you so much yeah for everyone that's listening you can find out about ed fraunheim fraunheim i should be able to say a german last name i don't um on our podcast show notes page with links on how you can find several of his books because he's written several about the workplace as well and more about his his work that he does consulting with folks on modern masculinity and workplace culture. Thanks, Ed. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.